Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co and follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end, where, as always, we're going to be sharing some exciting offers. And please feel free to share this with others who will also find it of interest. So today, I have to admit, by full disclosure, I am terribly excited for our guest, but I kind of stumbled into the significance of her joining us, and I'll tell you why. Ophir Dayan is a rock star. I didn't even think of it in terms of her age. I just wanted to bring in somebody who's a real, incredible, and inspiring pro-Israel activist. And only when she sent me her bio did I realize that she's as young as she is because she has the presence of being someone who's so much older and more mature. And I didn't think of her age, and that wasn't a motivating factor, but I'm so glad today to have somebody from her generation because it really is important that we hear these voices and we get information and inspiration from people who are her age and and have the experiences and worldview that she does. Ophir Dayan was born and raised in Malay Shomron, which is a small community in the Samaria Samaria region of Israel. She was an instructor, the head of a local branch and full-time volunteer for the Beitar youth movement as she was growing up. In her military service, She served as an officer in field positions in the IDF spokesman's unit and was awarded by the IDF head of operations for her role during Operation Protective Edge. Ophir studied both for a master's and bachelor's degree in international relations at Columbia University. And we're going to speak about that a a good bit today. At Columbia, she spearheaded the fight for Israel at one of what's known as Israel's the most anti-Israel universities in the whole U.S. as part of an organization called Students Supporting Israel. Ophir is also active today with Comeback, a non-governmental organization that assists formerly incarcerated people, and another wonderful organization, Biadenu, um, to, to uh, assert Jewish rights on the Temple Mount. And she's a frequent contributor in many Israeli newspapers, radio and TV stations. Ophir, I'm just so we met a few months ago at the um, Christian Media Summit. I saw you on stage. You were tremendously articulate and inspiring. And I'm just really glad to have you. Welcome to Inspiration from Zion. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's jump in. But before we talk about why you were famous and how you were drawn into doing what you're do what you've done and what you what you're doing, I always like to talk about with my guests about their family's Zionist background. Now you were born here in Israel. Um, that doesn't was, make you any, yeah. right. That doesn't make you any less of a Zionist. But who in your family were the Zionist pioneers who came back, and where did they come from, and why? So my my dad came to Israel from Argentina um, on the first flight of 1970. Um, he was supposed to be the last flight of 1969, but he flew with a lot and. We know how they like to be on time. So he was the first Olay of 1970 um, at the age of 15 with his uh, parents. And my grandmother was born in Argentina, but my grandfather was born. um, It's actually a really interesting story. He was born in Europe during their flight from Europe to Argentina uh, when they realized it's not a safe haven for Jews anymore. Um, So they they moved uh, across Europe until they got to Argentina and um, their three siblings, each of them born in a different country in Europe wow. uh, during their flight. Um, actually, um, if, if I may take one more minute, I yeah. think it's an important story to to demonstrate how 
how far the Jewish people have come in the last 75, 80 years is that my grandfather was actually, he crossed an international border for the first time in his life inside a potato sack. Um, um, he, you know, they needed to, um, to go across the border inside Europe and uh, he was so tiny that his mother was afraid he's going to cry. Uh, so they muffled his mouth and put him inside a potato sack um, and, and crossed the border at night opening the, the um, potato sack, you know, anxious to find out if little Moshe had survived or not, yeah. um, because he was only a few months old. Uh, luckily, uh, he did survive, and they made their way to Argentina, where um, I have to admit, you know, as a Jew, you have always um, a certain repulsion from the diaspora. But I have to say that my family loves Argentina for everything it gave my family. Um, it gave it a safe haven when we needed it most. Um, but my grandparents were avid Zionists in Argentina um, and they met uh, in the Tzohal, in the uh, revisionist movement in Argentina. Um, and they got married and in 1970, um, the entire family, uh, my grandfather, my grandmother and my dad, uh, moved to Israel. His older brother moved a few years before. Um, both my uh, father and my uncle were um, going to, uh, to Beitar in Argentina. I'm actually a fifth generation on both sides um, in Beitar, which is something I, I take huge pride of. So for people um, who don't know, Beitar is a Zionist yeah. youth movement. Um, that's part of wow oh, I'm having a senior moment see I'm not as young as you uh, <laughs> Jabotinsky uh, began a, right. a theology of uh, a, a, a theology so um, ideology of of um, yeah. Jabotinsky right um, so the revisionist movement um, Jabotinsky founded the movement in 1923 and and it branched out to be uh, you know, a youth movement and the Tzohal, which was like the political club for young adults where my grandparents met. Um, and, and yeah, and then they made their way to Israel um, in 1970. So and let me ask you a question about, so I, I appreciate how you say what we call in Hebrew, Hakarat HaTov, your appreciation for our, for what Argentina did. And I certainly, for my family in America, and and we all have that, but ultimately this is our home. But Argentina, as much as it was an important refuge for you and your family and many other Jews, it was also a place that accepted a lot of uh, Nazi war criminals in hiding. Did your family have any awareness or interaction with that when they were in Argentina? So not that I know of, but something that I just realized a few years ago while watching the incredible TV show about Eddie Cohen. Um, is I realized that my dad lived in the same city as Adolf Eichmann and Eli Cohen at the same time. Um, the three of them lived in the same city, uh, which which I think is incredible because it shows that the story of the Jewish people. You know, we uh, fled Europe because of anti-Semitism, and in the end of the day, my dad found himself living under a military government in Argentina. Um, you know, twenty minutes walk distance from, from Adolf Eichmann, one of the uh, most notorious anti-Semites and, and murderers of all times, uh, and Eddie Cohen, a proud Jew who risked his life to, um, to save the Jewish state, uh, which is, is incredible. Yeah, there's uh, a, one of them. Yeah. For, for those who don't know more about Eddie Cohen, Eichmann is, is certainly more infamous and, and a more known name outside of Israel. Ellie Cohen, for those who don't know, we're not going to go into the story now, um, was a spy for Israel and and was tremendously successful. The original book, I encourage everyone to read it, is called Our Man in Damascus. And I think in the last two years, um, Netflix made a really good film. Um, Not not entirely accurate, but it was tells a good story as well. Right. Amazing. Okay, so your father's family came here in 1970, yeah. the first flight of 1970. Um, and how about and your mother's family? My mom family? was born here, here. Um, in Tel Aviv. Her mother and father were also born in Israel. Interestingly, my uh, grandfather on my mother's side was uh, born in Shimon Sadiq. Uh, maybe your followers know it. It's Sheikh Jah. Um, yeah, it's, it's in a, just a, a Jewish neighborhood just north of the old city in Jerusalem. 
right um and it came into you know it, it was in in the middle of, of a huge controversy in recent years um yeah. because of uh two major events a uh a land dispute and and b um a series of anti-semitic attacks performed by by arabs uh, against jews so my my grandfather was born there in that neighborhood uh, for all those who are trying to say that Jews yeah. never lived there and it's a completely Palestinian neighborhood, that's not true. My my grandfather was born in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, and, and his family um, is originally from Hebron. Um, uh, from Hebron, okay. Yes. And when did they did they leave, what, in 1929 after the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the, the, the after massacre the there? Yeah. Right. So yeah. people... The um, other, from, the on other my mother's are, side, it's a really, you know... Um, long-term uh, Israeli family with Zionists. Right. But it's important for people to know who don't have the history that in 1929, there was a massacre of 67, if I remember correctly, Jews yeah. were massacred. Uh, and, and what's important about that, uh, other, as horrific as it was, is that a lot of people today, we're going to get into a little bit about this, talk about the occupation and Israel doesn't have a right to exist and occupying Palestinian Arabs. But 1929, of course, there was no um, Jewish state and the occupation was that of the British. Uh, so so a, a bit of false narrative, but but that's probably a deeper conversation. Right. And and one more point that I think is important to point out that it shows that um, for all those who are saying that Jews are just settler colonials from Europe, that's not, you know, that's not the truth. Jews lived in cities like Hebron uh, since the time of the Bible, Correct. Um, in, in Jerusalem, in Hebron, in Tiberias, in Spa. Um, they lived in those places. Um, so it's not like we came out of nowhere and decided to conquer someone. This was our home since forever. Right. And, and, and just adding to that, historically, it's worth underscoring that when we talk about coming back to Israel, it is coming back. Your, your grandparents came from Europe and your father was born and raised in Argentina. And, and my father's parents came from Poland and uh, came here and then went to America and I came back. But ultimately, wherever we were in the diaspora, it, it was a diaspora. Jews are not indigenous mm-hmm. to any place in the world other than Israel. And now it's just the miraculous return. And we've got 75 incredible years of statehood and Jews coming back to Israel for 100, close to 150 years now. Indeed. I, I just want to say one sentence that I yeah. heard from one of my activists at Columbia, uh, a bright student, an American a Jewish student who uh, once during an argument with an anti-Israel protester told him, you know, the protester blamed us for being settler colonialists and, and, and being occupiers. And then my, my activist who was uh, part of my club turned to him and say, said, how can you not realize that Israel is the only place on earth where Jews aren't, uh, aren't um, occupiers? Uh, and that sentence is something that resonated with me over the years. Um, I think that's the essence of it. This is the only place on earth where not occupiers. Correct. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So, Ophir, let's fast forward. Your family's in Israel. Yeah. You're born in Samaria. Um, you grew up in Samaria. You didn't serve, you served in the army, but you didn't serve in a combat unit. Yet when you got to university, you found yourself literally in the trenches. Um, you, yeah. you were, you, you undertook, I like to un- unpack this a little bit, but you undertook the battle to present Israel in a good light, but you also had to deal with physical threats, um, from Arab and pro-Arab students. I'm, I'm curious. Well, I like to talk about a lot of the details, but before we even do, did you expect that? No, no. Um, <laughs> um, the reason I chose Columbia is the only school I applied to in the U.S. Um, I was adamant to, to study here in Israel, in Hebrew. Um, but my dad once said, you know, he lived in New York at the time and said, you know what, maybe you should come to school here. And I said, you know what, if I get into Columbia, fine. But for any other school, I'm not moving across the world. I'm not leaving my homeland. Um, and the reason I said Columbia is not only because it's an Ivy League school and it's a very, very uh, prestigious and academically, you know, advanced and, and, you know, I, I loved the academic side of it. But, uh, one of the main reasons I chose Columbia is because I knew that there is a very strong anti-Israel, anti-Semitic sentiment among the students and professors. Um, 
And I thought that after almost four years as an officer in the IDF spokesperson unit, I, I could contribute to this um, fight over Israel's image there. Um, and I have to admit, you know, being um, post-protective edge, post a true war where I had to um, influence public opinion about Israel's actions during a war, I said, you know, nothing, you know, everything is just with um, pale in comparison to, to what I've seen in a war, um, but I was wrong. I think it's it's a different kind of anti-Israel sentiment. It's a different kind of anti-Semitism because the people I worked with during my uh, military service were reporters. Uh, sometimes they willingly um, falsified some narratives and presented facts in, in a manipulative way. But in the end of the day, they knew what's going on on the ground. Uh, the issue at Columbia and other very liberal schools is that um, the students are not always aware of the details, to say the least, not right. even the basic right. details. Um, and it's pure hatred for some of them. Um, it's it's irrational. It's not because they want to serve a certain narrative. It's because they really think Israel is the devil. Uh, and when they're convinced that Israel is an apartheid state um, and don't have any real, you know, just got instinct, it's really hard to fight. Um, and I have to say that something I did not expect coming to Colombia is how the professor uh, thought and oh, talked wow. about Israel. I expected to battle students, <laughs> not, not professors. And I found myself increasingly over the years at Colombia um, engaging more and more with professors and their anti-Semitic behaviors and statements um, and the administration. Um, and the students actually, you know, it, it was difficult, but it was only 50% of the war. Sure. Okay. You know what? So I want to come to that. But first of all, let's just take a really quick break. We'll leave that as a cliffhanger and talk about your yeah. battle against Columbia students and the staff and administration. But we're going to come right back. For most of us, the COVID pandemic is behind us, but there are still opportunities that you may not know about that can help you your church, other nonprofit, or business. The Employee Retention Tax Credit, ERTC, is important for all employers to explore and potentially receive a significant financial credit for having retained employees during the COVID shutdowns and business disruptions. If you have not already applied to receive the ERTC, part of the U.S. CARES Act, for your church, nonprofit, or business, please reach out to my friend, Liz Browser, who can help you. Liz is from Sheridan Wealth Advisors, a boutique tax advisory firm based in Miami. She provides honest and customized concierge service with a strong specialty in nonprofit and faith-based organizations. On top of being a great professional, Liz is really one of the good guys. She embraces the importance of building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's personal, so much so, that she and Sheridan Wealth Advisors will donate a portion of their income to support the Genesis 123 Foundation in building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's what I call a win-win-win-win. Reach out to Liz directly in the U.S. at 954-258-6097, 954-258-6097, or email at Liz at Sheridan Advisors. Dot com. Okay, Ophir. So you're now at Columbia. What year? What years are we talking about? So I was uh, admitted to Columbia in the fall of 2017. 2017. Okay, and you were there for four years. So until 21 or Five. 20. Uh, okay, five years. Um, what happened? You got there. You knew you were going to be a pro-Israel advocate. You didn't expect yes. it was going to be as so... as challenging as it was. What happened? So I have to say that it was important for me to be a part of the pro-Israel movement. This is my, you know, I, I didn't want to study in the diaspora without doing that. That was my, what I perceived as my service to Israel while I'm there. Uh, before I came to Colombia, before I started school, I reached out to the local Hillel chapter at Colombia, um, asked to join, but eventually I did not join um, because I fundamentally disagreed with the way they Perceive Israel. Um, they hosted Breaking the Silence a few times. 
and said they would do it again. For me, someone who hosts Breaking the Silence couldn't be considered a Zionist organization, and this is not something I wanted to be a part of. Um, luckily, a few weeks before I started attending Columbia, I got a message on Facebook from someone who um, over the years became my best friend. Her name is Dalia Zagar. She's Israeli, who uh, was born and raised in Lehavim in the Negev. And she also attended Columbia and was at the time um, the um, VP of Student Supporting Israel at Columbia. She asked me to join. And I did. Um, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, I want to take a minute to just uh, talk about what's unique about this organization, okay. because I think it's something that a lot of pro-Israel activists could learn from. Um, so first of all, Student Supporting Israel is not a Jewish organization, which might sound a bit weird, but it serves a purpose. First of all, um, if Zionism is a just cause, and it is, uh, everyone should advocate for it, not just Jews. Um, and I think it's a very important message where, you know, I had 30% at least of my activists non-Jewish. Um, and it sends a very strong message to the students and the professors we interact with that not only Jews support this cause. Um, and that's first of all. But second of all, if Zionism, um, and, and as I said, it is, is it's, a, it's just movement, but it's uh, one of the only, if not the only movement who managed to uh, liberate its own people after thousands of years of oppression, we have the moral obligation to involve other people in that story and, and inspire them. Um, so that's the reason Students Supporting Israel is a non-Jewish movement, but we also are less traditional in the way we um, talk about Israel. And this is something that was very important to me. Uh, today, you know, Hasbara became kind of a joke. Um, People say Hasbara with an American accent because it's it's not an Israeli term. Hasbara is a is a is a is a kind word for uh, propaganda, for explaining, yeah. for public relations. Right, and and the issue with how Israel does Hasbara those days, in my eyes, is that it focuses on all the wrong things. Um, it focuses on the great things that we've done since we got to Israel, but it doesn't focus on why we're in Israel. Um, it's true that, you know, we invented ways and, and drip irrigation and those are great things. And it's true that we exported them to Africa and helped, you know, uh, grow crops across deserts. That's, that's very true. And it's, it's amazing. And it's Kunalam and it's everything. But in the end of the day, that's not the reason we're here. We didn't come all this way and we, we didn't wait 2000 years just to invent drip irrigation. That's the reason <laughs> we're here. Um, and, and increasingly on college campuses, when they talk about apartheid and we, they talk about ethnic cleansing, you can steal, you know, truckloads of cherry tomatoes on an apartheid wall. It's not going to go away. Um, and I'm going to say something pretty blunt, but it's like someone asking you why you're beating your wife. And you say, <laughs> yeah, but how cute is my kid? You know, nice. we're not answering the question. They're talking about apartheid and we are talking about cherry tomatoes yeah. and, and we're not answering the question. And Student Supporting Israel does something very different. Twice a year, every semester, uh, we have a huge event on campus called Hebrew Liberation Week, yeah. where we present the story of the Jewish people, their connection to the land of Israel, uh, the different communities inside the Jewish people. Uh, we're talking all the time about the, the deep connection and how you know, statehood is not just one feature of modern Zionism, but it's an inherent part of Judaism. Um, and and we do the best that we can to show that connection and to uh, disprove these false narratives of Jews being from Europe or Jews being from wherever, just coming here in order to conquer because they just saw, you know, a fruitful land and, and, and wanted to take over it. Um, and that's what I like the most about students supporting Israel, that we are actually addressing the question being asked yeah. and not um, sugarcoating other things that are irrelevant. Very good. So that, that, thank you for sharing that. Before, but I want to come back to the, yeah. the, what happened on campus. But before I do, I have to make an observation. I always yes. record this by video. So I have the privilege of seeing you. Others who are listening now don't get to see you. Your, your responses and the passion is evident, but something you just said struck me. You went to Columbia already thinking, what about what? How were you going to be serving Israel? 
and yeah. that right but but you met students most students on american campuses and i was once one are not thinking of servicing anything they're thinking their their four years their education what are they going to get out of it and what and how is that going to contribute to their career and i think that just underscores or highlights a lot the the point that i made in introducing you your maturity now of course you finished the army you came to uh, Columbia University, much older than an average yeah. uh, freshman student. But nonetheless, I just have to highlight that because I didn't want it to slip by. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about, so what happened? You're with Students Supporting Israel. You're addressing the real issues. But how did you get become in the crosshairs, if you will, of this uh, very substantial or, or substantial by way of um, influence anti-Israel, anti-Semitic movement? So, look, um, unfortunately, Dahlia and I were the only Israeli students advocating for Israel at Colombia at the time. Uh, Israeli students who go to to Colombia, usually uh, it changed a bit after uh, the last uh, Operation Guardian of the Wall, so we can talk about it, but, but when I was there, the vast majority of Israeli students didn't want anything to do with it. They said we did our military service, if they did or they didn't, I don't know. Um, but they came to Colombia in order to, as you said, advance their careers to um, find a good Wall Street position and stay <laughs> there and marry the most Americanized woman they can. Um, and and they didn't want to be involved in all this, you know, mess of Israeli um, Israeli relations, they just didn't want to do it. So when you have this newcomer who, um, and I can attest and say about myself that it's very opinionated and very loud and is Israeli and joining the fight for Israel, it draws attention. Um, and my dad was then serving as a diplomat in New York, which also added to, um, you know, the, the spotlight that I got by, by the anti-Israel movement. Um, especially uh, when we hosted him on the campus for a talk. Um, we can talk about that, but that was, you know, I think a turning point for me because they actually um, distributed flyers um, bashing my dad, saying a lot of incorrect stuff. Um, and that's when I, I always knew that, but but that's when it became very personal for me, that I understood that you can't detach who I am from this fight. The reason that I do it is not because I'm protecting this distant land. It's because when they say Israel is a racist state, they're saying Ophelia is a racist because being Israeli is such a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so when I got to Colombia, it became very personal for me. You know, living in Israel, you sometimes take it for granted. Um, and, and at Colombia, it became really personal. And I experienced a lot of instances where I saw how people who had no knowledge of who I am just knew that I'm Israeli, um, targeted me in all certain ways, uh, screaming white supremacists at me in the hallways, um, calling me a baby killer when they hear me speak Hebrew on the phone. But um, entirely unprovoked. People would just... Uh, entirely can't... unprovoked. They can tell you that my first semester, nobody knew who I am. Uh, it's before I even became, you know, um, a, a pretty well-known figure at Columbia. Um, it was my first semester and I was um, walking with a friend in, in a building at Columbia and he's an American student who um, who served in the IDF as a lone soldier um, in the Haredi uh, field battalion okay. and, and we were walking and talking in Hebrew uh, and we might as well have been, you know, just American Jewish students, like nobody knew we were Israeli um, and he he's an American. Um, and we were talking in Hebrew, and then this uh, lady, uh, this student started screaming at me, you're a baby killer. And it was my first semester. I was really shocked. I, I thought I misheard her, and I, I approached her <laughs> and said, excuse me? I said, why do you kill Muslim babies? And I, you know, I just looked at her, and I honestly, with like a lot of naivety, I just said, I don't think I ever met or touched a Muslim baby. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and she's like, no, you're talking Hebrew. You like to kill Muslim babies. And it's like, you know, lady, I, I don't know you. Um, I don't know who you are. Just leave me alone. 
And, and what I realized at that moment is that how vulnerable I was at Columbia because this happened in the address to the building with a Columbia security doorman sitting right there hearing this entire exchange of whatever you want to call it. Um, it's not even curses, it's just insanity. And, and they did nothing. And when I approached the doorman and I said, you know, you are part of public safety, maybe you should report what just happened. He just looked at me so confused and said, yeah, but so what? Um, and, you experienced and that's an assault. I, you were assaulted. Yeah, that's and, and that's when I understood it's routine. Yeah. Um, we can talk about it more if you want, but I even experienced something closer to physical assault once, um, in, in which case public safety was also present and did nothing. Uh, and did not intervene. Um, and, and I realized it's a routine that Jewish students and pro-Israel students are vulnerable and they're not being protected by Columbia, uh, which is sad because it's an institution that I love. And, and this is something that is very important for me to, to mention is that everything I did at Columbia is not because I hate Columbia. I love Columbia. I think it's a great institution and I think it's, it has some really great professors and the level of knowledge um, and, and academic learning is, is incredible. And I want Jewish and pro-Israel students to be able to attend that institution and, you know, live up to their potentials. But a lot of them can't do that when that's the case. And everything I did at Columbia, is not because I dislike Columbia, it's because I love Columbia and I want to make it a better place and a more safe place for, for those who want to attend it, if they're pro-Israel or, or Jewish. So I want to ask you a question and maybe um, yeah. extrapolate from Colombia. And it's not—it's a few years since you've been there, but not that long. And and you're certainly much closer to it than I am. But recently, um, there have been across American campuses, Western campuses, um, any number of anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. Yeah, um, they're 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 the same, but they're different. Um, but uh, typically attacking Jews and making making as you just suggested uncomfortable for Jews either to be there or to be there in public um, and, and assert whether it's their nationalist or religious orientation. Um, what, what's, what's your sense of across the board, the situation for uh, Jew, Jewish students on campuses? I think it's getting worse. Um, and I think in certain campuses, it is bad. First of all, the distinction that is uh, really important to make, it's not every campus in the U.S. There are certain campuses that are great for Jewish students. Uh, students supporting Israel has more than 50 chapters across the U.S. and Canada and, and South America and Europe. And in most of them, you know, it's great. Uh, during my time in Colombia, my um, fellow activists at Texas A&M passed a super pro-Israel resolution in their student body, something that I could only dream of. Wow. Um, and and it's not every campus. Some campuses are, are great. Um, I even had a colleague, you know, an SSI in the University of Iowa, which is super random. I think he was the only Jew on campus, but but you know, he was treated fairly. Um, it's only a handful of very, very extreme campuses. Um, and and some on the right, some on the left, but it's it's more of the extreme campuses, not the mainstream ones. Okay. Um, and, and I think what's happening on campuses today, and, and it's a very, very dangerous trend in my opinion, is that the administration is seeing anti-Semitic attacks as political, while other uh, attacks based on race are racist. Right. So, and they treat it as, as such. So, for example, when I was... Um, surrounded by 70 anti-Israel activists at Colombia and chanted and screamed and almost assaulted, you know, what they said, you should put public safety on your speed dial. But when an African-American student was uh, attacked, um, not physically, um, thank God, uh, she was attacked verbally by, by a white supremacist student, he was made to leave Colombia a few weeks later and she was supported. Um, which I have no complaints. I think they did the right thing, but I think that should have been the case in my case as well. Of course, of well. course. Um, and I think there's some sort of, of 
confusion, not seeing anti-Israel and anti-Semitic attacks as equivalent to anti-Black or anti-Asian attacks. Yeah. Um, so, so the treatment of them is also very different, which, which I think is very, very scary for students. You articulate that very, very well. Thank you. There was an article recently, I'm looking at it on my desk. I don't see the date, but somewhat recently, in the last month or so, um, entitled Christian, in Wall Street Journal, Christian Colleges Can Be Good for Jews, uh, advocating that Jewish students who are being accepted to America's top universities at a lower rate and are finding discrimination and and forms of harassment and assault and 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 discomfort for their safety on an increased basis. So this article suggests that Jewish students should attend Christian uh, colleges. Uh, a, did you ever hear of such a thing? And B, what are your thoughts? So I, it wasn't a trend when I was in college. Um, oh, it sounds like a, a long time ago. It was only a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I suppose um, you're very but, mature. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but I reject that in the strongest terms. I think that Jewish and pro-Israel students should be able to attend whichever college they want. If they want to attend a Christian college, that's great. If they want to attend a Buddhist college, that's also great. And if they want to attend an Ivy League university, that's also great. Um, I think this notion of, you know, blaming the victim is very very dangerous i think jewish and pro-israel students should be able to attend wherever college they want and and the administrations should protect them um we shouldn't be forced into certain colleges because we are mistreated in other colleges i think it says a lot about those colleges where jews don't feel safe and and i have to say that colombia is doing a lot in recent years to to change that environment and i want to give i don't know if you'll hear it uh, but my dean in undergrad lisa rosenmatch i think is she plays a huge part of it she's she's jewish herself um an orthodox jewish um dean and she took it as her life mission to make Colombia safer for jewish students and i wish that every Ivy League University in the U.S. had some someone like Lisa, um, yeah. because she she really took it as her life mission, and and not only protecting Jewish students, but also advancing academic relationships between Colombia and Israeli institutions. Thanks to her, Colombia now has a dual degree program with Tel Aviv University, um, and thanks to her, Colombia is now opening the Global Center for Research and and Humanities in Tel Aviv. Um, and I think those initiatives are doing so much, not only for the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, but also for the Jewish students themselves on campus. When Israel is normalized on college campuses, when more Colombia students, you know, come to uh, to the Global Center in Israel for a month or so, uh, when they meet more Israelis who come on the dual degree program where they study in Tel Aviv for two years and then in Colombia for two years, they interact with Israelis. And I think the most important thing is just to uh, make sure that other students see us as human. <laughs> that's sure. the number one, sure. that's the, the, the starting point. Well, that and what you were suggesting before, whether Jewish or Israeli specifically, that nobody should be denied that opportunity and those, the educational experience exactly. and, and, and the growth and networking that comes out of there. Um, and the free will to choose whatever they want. Right. Excellent. Ophira, I want to take a break. I want to pick up on one more thing relating to being a student. And then I want to talk about more big picture Israel things. But first, we're going to take this quick. Perfect. Break. When you think of Jerusalem, you probably think of its historic and biblical sites. Run for Zion is a trip unlike any other. You will join tens of thousands of Israelis interacting with Jerusalem as you never have and never imagined you would. You'll connect with and bless Israelis of all backgrounds. If you've never been to Israel and are dying to come visit, or haven't been for a while and can't wait to get back, Run for Zion is the opportunity for you. And now, if you register today, you can join us for as little as $29. Yes, that's for real, just $29. Run for Zion is a pilgrimage and service experience that gets you out of the tour bus, interacting with the people and the land. Check out runforzion.com for details and come run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, so Ophir. I admire how much you admire and had a good experience at Columbia University. 
I can go back to my university. I went to Emory. We didn't have a particular problem. In fact, so much so that, albeit that it was in the 1980s, I kept hearing about the troubles that pro-Israel students were having on other campuses, and we didn't. So I thought I would make a, a, a proactive relationship with the head of the Islamic Student Association to preempt that. Um, and I became friendly with this Syrian medical student um, who I've always wondered where he is, um, albeit that we didn't see eye to eye on very much. Um, many of my experiences at college, the things that I remember the most were not things that were that I learned in the classroom. I'm, I'm curious, what's the most important yeah. lesson that you took away that's still with you today from that experience? So it's it's a, it's a question I wonder you know I pondered for so long after after Columbia and during those four years um, I have to say that it's it, it's going to sound a bit tacky I'm aware of it um, but I think the most important lesson that I learned about it is that every person can contribute to 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 this fight for Israel's name even if they're not like me. I, I, I know I'm very vocal. I know I like to be the front lines. That's just who I am. But I met so many students who don't like the spotlight. They want to do for Israel, but they don't want to be exposed. Uh, they don't want to be targeted. They, or they're just shy, and that's fine. And I think there is some kind of um, mentality in, in the Jewish communities and in Israel that you know you have to be in the front lines and you have to be the fighter and the warrior, but you don't. There's so much to be done behind the scenes. So I'll give you an extreme example. Um, I want to say one off, but I'm pretty sure he was the best activist I ever had at Columbia. Is a student from Bangladesh. Bangladesh does not recognize Israel. Bangladesh and and full disclosure, he's one of my best friends today. Um, And. You know, we were just talking a few minutes ago before before we started recording. He's an incredible human being, uh, but his country unfortunately does not recognize Israel. On his passport, it said, "You know, you can enter every country of the world except yeah. Israel," yeah. Uh, which is funny. They don't recognize us, but they rather name on their passport. But whatever, a whole <laughs> different issue. But um, he <laughs> could not be exposed as a pro-Israel student. He was deeply pro-Israel, but yeah. his family still lived in Bangladesh, and sure. he would put them at risk if he was seen advocating for Israel. And he spent four years at Columbia advocating for Israel, being on the board of Students Supporting Israel, without the, ever having this picture taken as a part of our club, without his best friends who are in the Muslim Islamic uh, the Islamic Students Association being even aware that he was part of Students Supporting Israel. You know, and and he did so much for Israel. Uh, he even visited Israel twice during wow. time. Um, and 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 he was never seen with us. Um, you know, and and it's incredible. It just means that everyone has something to give to this struggle, to this fight, even if they don't want to be exposed, even if they're shy, even if they feel they don't know the facts. And and another thing I'm going to briefly say that I learned during my time at Columbia is the importance of knowledge. Um, and I, I know it sounds, you know, obvious, but it's not. A lot of um, American Jews who come to college campuses, they want to advocate for Israel. They want to do good things, but um, their knowledge of Israel is somehow limited. Everything they heard so far in the very Zionist communities they grew up in is that Israel is this unicorn land where everything is golden and flows with honey and it's the most perfect place on earth and it's kind of a you know a Disneyland on earth and they maybe you know went to birthright and what they learned in birthright which I think is an incredible initiative but what would they see there um as a part of birthright's mission is to connect them to Judaism it's not to show them any complexity so what they know is Masada and they know of camels and it's really, really great. But when they come to college campus and and they're, they're being told that Israel is an apartheid state to perform yes. ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, they don't have the tools to combat that. Correct. Not externally, but not even for themselves. They can't explain themselves this dissonance between what they've heard at home and what they're hearing now. And and I'm afraid that many of them go either, you know, they just hide their Jewish pro-Israel identities because of that conflict, or 
they join anti-Israel movements. Uh, um, because which, they don't know any I, better or it goes with their orientation, which is... Or they just don't want this conflict. You know, we have to remember that American students get to college campus when they're 18. One of the most important things to an 18-year-old is having friends, obviously. Yeah. And and they don't want to be sidelined. They don't want to be... You know, I, I had a friend at Columbia who was not allowed into the hip-hop club because he was in student supporting Israel. They don't no experience kidding. those wow. things. The hip hop club. The hip hop. Um, you know, a Jewish Haredi person. I I don't know if he would fit in the hip hop club, anyways. But <laughs> but he was not allowed because he was a part of students supporting Israel, which is absurd. Um, so so I think what I learned at Columbia is how important it is education on a college campuses way way before they gave the college campuses. And, yes. And I spoke at many 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 I think hundreds of synagogues and community centers. Um, across Northeastern America when I was there because it was so important for me to meet those students before they get on college campus. Yes. Um, so, so they know what to expect. Very nice. Okay, so Ophir, I want to pivot a little bit. Our mission, Let's Genesis 123 Foundation, is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel. Um, most of our listeners, the inspiration from Zion podcast, are Christian. So we've we've seen a parallel trend, certainly in America, of both young Europeans, Jewish and Christian students um, who have who have walked away from their support of Israel or don't understand their support of Israel. And in fact, two years, something that I'm particularly sensitive to, there were two two years ago, there were two polls indicating a 50 percent drop in support of Israel among young Christians, people who are Europeans. Uh, I know you said that about a third of the activists and students uh, supporting Israel were non-Jews. Some, I'm sure, were Christian. But I'm curious, what would you say as an Israeli Jew to a Christian student coming into a campus that wouldn't necessarily be a Christian campus? And they're coming from a home and from a community and a church that's typically pro-Israel. But they also, like the Jewish students that you encountered, don't know the history, don't have depth of knowledge, they know their Bible, what would you say to give them encouragement when they're coming to a situation like that? Okay, I think it's it's not something I did a lot with Colombia because Colombia is not known for for its uh, huge support of Christian students um, as well. It's it's pretty a religious, but but look, I think an important thing to highlight is the common grounds and the common ideals that we share. Uh, between between Jews and Christians and the importance of the Bible not only as a religious text, which obviously it is, but also as a history book. And it tells the story of these people who, you know, who lived in that land, who are indigenous to that land. And and I think this is something that is important. But I would also say, and and I'm aware that is not possible because it's very, very expensive, but something that we try to do a lot is um subsidize trips for Christian students to come to Israel because I think when they see it with their own eyes, this is where you know it changes. Not just Christians, obviously, but but I can tell you that uh, one of my my good now good friends who is the president of the military veterans club in Colombia is uh, a Catholic Christian from an Italian family. When he came to Israel and visited the Church of Annunciation in Nazareth, he you know, you could see how, you know, the understanding of the importance of this land just hit him at once. Yes. You could actually see that. Sure. And and I and I think talking about this common um common ground that we share is super important. But I know that's not what you asked, but it's really important for me to say. Um I think a huge challenge that we do have is addressing students who are not Christian, who are not connected to their uh, religious okay. Uh, aspect and and I want to briefly uh, talk about how we introduced Israel to them because I think it's no less important and it's increasingly becoming the issue on college campuses uh, with secular students who are interested in human rights who are interested in stuff like yes. that and 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 they see Israel as an occupier as an apartheid state and the way I always presented Israel, and forgive me for giving you my elevator pitch of Israel, but this is... I invited you, pitch away. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 30 seconds I gave everyone about who is Israel. I think that's increasingly the, the 
uh, narrative we should be using. And it's 100% true. I'm not making anything out. Um, but let me tell you the story of the Jewish people. It's an indigenous people who were um, born, raised, and lived in this land. And 2,000 years ago, they were expelled by European colonialists from their land. And for this kind of 2,000 years, they were oppressed. They were murdered. They were, um, you know, enslaved. Yes. And at the height of it, uh, the worst of all, they were genocide. Uh, a, a true genocide was performed against them. But after 2,000 years, they, they, they still had the hope of coming back to their land. And after 2,000 years of all these horrible things and genocide, they managed to liberate themselves and come back to this land and re-establish a sovereign Jewish state in their homeland. And for me, I don't know any more progressive, more liberal cause than this cause. Uh, for people who can liberate themselves from oppression. Um, and and that's the story I think we should be telling college students, um, whether they're Christians or Muslims. Uh, yeah. But this is a story of, of empowerment that we can all relate to. And that's the story of the Jewish people, not drip irrigation and waste, which are great inventions, but they're not the story of the Jewish yeah. people. We came back to Israel, and, that's, and that goes back a bit to the Christian part, we came back to Israel for the Temple Mount. We did not come to Israel after 2,000 years. We did not pray for 2,000 years for Israeli center. Okay? And, and I think that's something that is important to say, that it's not... Judea and Samaria are not an appendix. They're not something, you know, that we can settle on. Um, they are the heart and soul of, of Judaism. They're the cradle of Judaism. And you know, you can reach a certain conclusion uh, based on your political opinions if you should give up some of it for peace or not. And I disagree, but it's a legitimate opinion. But first of all, you need to understand how essential it is to Judaism before you make that. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed, keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill. They are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Excellent, excellent. So let's 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 go to that. You grew up in Samaria. Um, not not everybody in Judea and Samaria, but most of us are right of center. Um, but it also means that we have a unique interaction with our Palestinian Arab neighbors more mm -hmm. than most Israelis and and uh, more than most people in the world understand what's your, your whether overlaying your political opinion or 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 not what's your view as to how what's the future how are we going to get along will there be peace how do we make peace okay so i'm sorry it's not going to be an optimistic day but okay. look growing up in the samaria i think one of the most important things i learned is to respect palestinians they are not going anywhere as much as we're not going anywhere and their ideological beliefs about the uh, necessity of them controlling this land are not something we just, you know, really, really just like say, oh, okay, so we'll give you money or we'll give you, you know, a piece of land and you'll go away. No, they want it all just like us. And, and I think what I understood living here is that um, these are two competing national movements and they have competing interests. 
that I unfortunately don't see being reconciled anytime soon. And and I think a lot of uh, my friends who are left of center, and I'm sorry for saying that, but they show a bit of disrespect to the Palestinians when they say, you know, they could settle for less and, you know, you can resolve it. No, they they have their ideology as much as we have it. And and you're you can't just you know buy them out with a bit of money and a bit of land. No, they, it it's it's a true ideology. It's not just you know something that they were willing to to forego for for a bit of money. Um, and and I think that's a very problematic view of Palestinian Arabs that is um, that is consistent across, you know, the Israeli left and and the American uh, and European left, where they think, you know, well, we can just take these two nations uh, and divide a country between them. No, we don't want half of it. Uh, each of us wants to live in the entirety of the land, uh, which is which is a problem because it's, you can't reconcile that. Um, and, and, and that's what I learned living here. Um, I also learned, you know, the boundaries that they're different. You you can't deny that. You know, when I was a a first grader, it was during the second intifada. Uh, my school bus got uh, bombed with multiple cocktails, with rocks, almost on a weekly basis, and I understood that they don't have those boundaries of not harming children, uh, which is something that we value. Um, in terms of the future, look, I. I again, it's not going to be optimistic. I don't see this being resolved anytime soon, but I don't think that means it needs to be stagnant. I don't think we should just say, oh, we can't resolve it, so we should do nothing. I, I think there is increasingly today um, a concept of minimizing the conflict um, and not just resolving it. So since resolving it is not an option currently because we do not have a partner, let's say that, straight out. Uh, the, the Palestinian Authority is extremely weak. It barely controls Judea and Samaria, the, the Palestinian areas of Judea and Samaria, let alone Gaza, which where it has no influence at all. Um, so I think that minimizing the conflict and making sure people suffer um, the least um, is, is something we should be doing. I think there are certain restrictions on Palestinians that should be lifted. Uh, I think not all checkpoints are necessary. Um, and I think we need to give them some sort of ability to control some of the things, obviously not security or issues like that, but, and, and with education, there is an issue as well, but things like, I don't know, electricity. Um, Israel gains nothing from controlling their electricity because they don't pay their dues to the Israeli Electricity Authority. And we give them electricity for free, which you and I pay for. Um, and we can tell them, okay, you want to be independent? Yes. Fine. Generate your own electricity and pay for it. Um, and I think that would benefit both sides because if they want to be independent so much, they can say, oh, but we don't want to have the burden that comes with it. Right. Um, and and I think you, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, finish. No, no. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that I think that, um, both letting them do more and take more of the burden and, um, minimizing their suffering, you can't deny that, you know, being Palestinian is not a very tempting offer. Um, their living conditions are not good. Um, but I dispute the fact that it's solely because of Israel. Right. So that's um, the point I was going to say is that this yeah. month they mark what they call the Nakba, the catastrophe of Israel's yeah. uh, birth and, and very existence, um, which unfortunately for them, means that that's their narrative is that that they have not done if they want a state um, and independence they haven't really done very much to build that up and and i don't think it was deliberate i don't know why but there was an article this week i read that about a a decrease of unemployment among palestinian arabs which i'm sure you'll agree with me is a good thing but then i also noticed that a third uh, almost a third 30 percent of the palestinian arabs who are employed are employed in israel now, that's a great yeah. thing from my perspective is that we can be interdependent, but it also means that they have yet to build up their own economic infrastructure exactly. to employ their own people in in, in ways that can create, um, uh, what's the word, 
um, benefits that that will be that will give them something positive uh, to do and to look for. Exactly. I think, you know, what made Israel such a successful endeavor um, in its past 75 years is that Israel had all the mechanisms for a state before it became a state. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, we had political bodies. We, you know, we knew who was going to manage which aspect of, of Jewish life in the Jewish state. Um, and Palestinians don't currently have it. Um, and I think they can't only blame Israel for that. It's been 75 years since um, Israel's independence, and they did very little. Um, I think it is important to say that a lot of suffrage on the Palestinian side is caused by their own leaders. And right. and I think not saying that is, is missing the truth. I mean, President Mahmoud Abbas is now, I think, on his 18th year of a five-year term. Correct. Um, and and that's not something Israel is to blame for. They could have elections if they wanted to, but they just don't want to. Right. And they're, they're, they're living under a dictatorship, not because Israel forces them to live under a dictatorship, because that's what their own leaders chose. And, and blaming it on Israel is not only wrong, but it harms them. Because blaming Israel means that they're not resolving the issue. They're not making their leaders go to elections Correct. because they they flagged the blame and put it on us where we have nothing we can't force Mahmoud Abbas to go to elections not how we want to because it's not our role um and and I think that you know it's and and the government that they have is a huge contributor to to what we're seeing as their misery I think that the need to preserve for example the refugee camps uh, in order to get assistance from the international community and from different Arab states, they need to show how poor they are. And they, oh, and, and, interesting. And, and if you look, and, and I think it's fascinating, there's um, in, in a place where you can watch Nablus from, from above, uh, and, and you see the vast lands that they can build on and this really, really, really neat tight um, refugee camp. And, and you can't ignore the thought that they don't have to live this way. They can right. branch out and they can build homes that are not on top of each other. But they choose not to do that because that way they would stop getting money for infrastructure and for donations and for humanitarian aid from from the international community and from other uh, Arab states. And and I think it's a pity that they preferred this money over their their citizens and, the, and the well being of the Palestinian yeah. Arab, correct. And 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 for us as Israel, it's also very problematic because when you live in, in certain conditions of misery in a refugee camp, you become radicalized and, and it comes out on us. Wow, um, tremendous depth. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad I thought to invite you. I'm, uh, what, what an incredible conversation. I do I'm want to have you back. Are there, there are any number Let's of subsequent conversations, but I have one last question. Just in the eventuality that I don't yeah. talk to you for 10 years, what's Ophir Diane going to be doing in 10 years from now? Well, um, hopefully very influential in Israel. I, you know, Israel is my life mission. I, you know, it's a huge part of who I am and I want to be influential. I don't know in what way, um, but I, I hope to be influential. Um, I'm going to be extremely modest here. My dream since I was three years old is to be prime minister. I still hope that it's going to happen someday. Um, maybe not in 10 years. That's very soon. I'm going to be less than 40, but, um, but maybe someday. Um, but, but I do want to do good for Israel. And I think it deserves um, people who do good for it. And we we don't see that a lot in recent years, unfortunately, on either side of the political map. Well, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but we ran out of time and I kind of contracted things is what would you do if you're prime minister? So I'll wait. I'll put that on hold for next, until, time. For next time or until that the happens. Um, but I, I, I look forward to that because you have the depth of commitment um, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm inspired as the name of the podcast is. And I hope other people are. Ophir, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
And to all of our listeners, as you know, if you've been following Inspiration from Zion for the last two years, you know, I say uh, kind of tongue in cheek, if you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward. We've always created this great incentive. We call call it from Jonathan's bookshelf. Each month we give away a special volume connected to Israel and the land and the Jewish people. And all we ask is that you do is go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. When you And when you comment and share the link to this program, we're going to select one person at random to receive this month's special gift. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area and want to stop in and thank them for helping make programs and conversations like this possible, I know they'll appreciate it. And special thanks as well to the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all of the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue to build bridges. This episode, you know, it's the first episode of of May. Uh, We're uh, on the verge of the 75th secular anniversary of the state of Israel. Um, And so we are celebrating this episode in honor of the incredible achievements of Israel in the last 75 years and praying for many, many more. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. As always, we love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions, especially questions about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here where we bring, bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy. And I send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. 